Hebrews 6, 13 to 20. Today is week number 25 in the book of Hebrews and um, almost above six months now and we are finishing chapter 6 today. Here is what the author of Hebrews says. Um, Hebrews 6, 13 to 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could not swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessings I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by that greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end to all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. That by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, he might have, we might have strong consolation, who have, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, which the forerunner, which our forerunner, has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Amen. Let's read verse 17 and 18 together. Two of the most powerful verses you can ever read in the whole scripture. So awesome. Let's read verse 17 and 18. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise, the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation. Amen. Who who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. If I can give you a recommendation to memorize a couple of verses, please memorize these two. These are so powerful. So we've been in the book of Hebrews now for six months. Um, again, the book of Hebrews is written to people who were Jewish at some point, and now um, they, they, they became Christian, and now they're considering going back to Judaism. So the author of Hebrews wrote that book to um, tell them never to consider going back to Judaism. And in the first 10 chapters, he pretty much argued the supremacy of Christ, that Jesus is far more superior than the Old Testament, and because of that, they should never consider going back to uh, Judaism. Um, now, after that, he uh, went on from the end of chapter. Give me one second, you guys. Alexandra, can you make sure Mike is okay? He just went, and I think he, he's with you guys. Make sure he's okay. Um, um, and then after that, from the middle or toward the end of chapter 10, he started the practical application of chapter 10, how they should live their lives in the face of persecution so they can never go back to Judaism and get hold of Christ. Throughout the book, the author of Hebrews gave them five stern warnings never to consider going back to Judaism. This passage that we're in right now from chapter 5 verse 13 all the way till the end of chapter 6 is the third warning that he gave them so they never go back to Judaism. 
we have been pretty much four weeks in that warning, and now today we're closing that by this passage where the author of Hebrews is encouraging his reader to stick with Christ and never go back to Judaism by reminding them of the immutability of the promises of God that he has granted them. Therefore, they should hold on that promises and these words of God so hard and never consider going back to Judaism. Now, we closed chapter 6, verse 12 last week. If you, if you remember, what was the last phrase we ended up with? He's saying, we're writing this to you so you will not be sluggish, right? But be imitators of those who through patience and faith have inherited the promise, right? Amen. Amen. So now, in, in chapter 6, verse 13 to 12, now he's elaborating more on that. He started by using Abraham as an example of someone who through both patience and and faith inherited the promise. And not only that, but he's also using Abraham as a type of how God deals with his people. Uh, Katrina, you have Micah? Okay. Uh, as a type of how God is dealing with you and me as Christian, the heirs of his promise. Amen? So that is pretty much the point here. Started with Abraham as a type, and then how the way God dealt with Abraham is the exact same way he dealt with us. So he started with verses 13 to 15 by pointing out the example of Abraham. He said this, For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could not swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so, after he patiently endured, patiently waited, he obtained the promise. Now, what incidents is the author of Hebrews referring to here when he says he swore to Abraham by himself saying, surely blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply you. This is actually a quote from Genesis 22 verses 16 and 17. Okay, so Hebrews 6 14 is a quote from Genesis 22 16 and 17. What happened there? Remember, God actually gave Abraham the promise that he will have Isaac in Genesis 12 and renewed that promises again in Genesis 15. That's when God made the promise to Abraham, Genesis 12, and renewed it in Genesis 15. And then what happened is that God gave Abraham Isaac. Isaac was born. And then in Genesis 22, we see that God is testing Abraham by saying, take your son, your one and only son, Isaac, and go offer him as a sacrifice for me. And that's the story we read in the first 12 verses of Genesis 22. Abraham obeyed God, and he went, and he was willing to sacrifice Isaac. And at the very last moment, God said, hold back your hand, and God provided a ram so that he can sacrifice the animal instead of his son, his son Isaac. You guys follow me? As a response of Abraham's faithfulness to God and his willingness to obey God, God came back to Abraham with these words here that we read in Genesis 22, 16 to 18. God is saying this to Abraham, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessings I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply your descendants. You guys are with me? So this oath, that sworn statement, sworn promise from God to Abraham was a response to Abraham's faithfulness.
faithful and faithfulness and love to God in that he was, was, was willing to offer up Isaac to God. You guys are with me? All right. So here without the author of Hebrews saying, for when God made the promise to Abraham, and when the author of Hebrews is saying that, he's talking about God's promise in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. Because he could not swear by no one greater, he sworn by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply you. Now the author of Hebrews is moving all the way till the end of chapter 22 after Isaac was almost sacrificed because Abraham wanted to be obedient. And now God is coming back to confirm the promise that he has given to Abraham by an oath. You guys are with me? So God gave Abraham a promise. And that promise waited for so long, about 25 years, that Isaac was born. And when Isaac was a young man, a lad, maybe 12, 11 or something like that, that's 35 years almost from the time that God has given the promise to Abraham. Now because of Abraham faithful, God comes through and he confirms that promise that he has given almost 35 years ago with an oath now. You guys are with me? A promise and now an oath. Now, why would God give Abraham an oath? Shouldn't the promise of God be sufficient? Yes, the promise of God should be very sufficient for Abraham to trust him. And Abraham did trust him based on only his promise. You guys are with me? But because God wanted to confirm to Abraham beyond the shadow of any doubt for the sake of Abraham himself that the promises will come absolutely true and his descendant will be absolutely multiplied. There is no doubt about it. God confirmed that promise with an oath. You guys are with me. Pay attention to this because, again, this is a type of how God deals with you and me as well in our salvation in the New Testament. So the oath was not given, so God will put himself under more obligation or anything pertaining to God. The, the oath was given mainly for Abraham's sake, so he can have more peace and rest more secure that the very promises of God will absolutely be fulfilled in his life. Amen? Or he's going to see it eventually. And when God swore to Abraham, we see that many times in the Old Testament that God will swear, saying, as I live, says the Lord. And when God says, as I live, says the Lord, that means that words that comes after that, the promise that God will make to the people is as sure as the fact that God himself lived. You guys are with me? When a prophet in the Old Testament says this, as, as long as the Lord lives, I will do this or that. What, what the prophet is saying is this. I will perform the words that is coming out of mouth and the assurance that these words will come to pass is as sure as the fact that God exists and God lives. You guys are with me? These are the words of the promise that any man will do in the Old Testament. In other words, the, the, the person who makes these sworn statements saying, the fact that God exists guarantees that the words that I'm promising right now will be fulfilled. He's calling God to be kind of the witness and make sure that his promise is as assured as the fact that God exists. Now, when God wanted to make an oath, he cannot swear by somebody else because there is nobody greater than him, right? So a prophet in the Old Testament say, as the Lord lives. But when God made an oath in the Old Testament, when God swears in the Old Testament, he says, as I live, saith the Lord. You guys are with me? Because there is nobody greater than him. And when God make a statement in that sense, a sworn oath statement, he's saying that I guarantee 
the very fulfillment of this promise and the assurity that this will happen is as secure and as sure as the fact that I do exist. You guys are with me, right? So this is pretty much the point here. God made a promise to Abraham and because of his faithfulness throughout these years, even to the point that he wanted to offer Isaac, God rewarded him by confirming the promise with an oath that puts God as a guarantor to the very promise that he already has given Abraham. So that's the point. This is how God dealt with Abraham in the Old Testament. And then it says this, verse 15, And so, after he patiently endured, he obtained that promise. What is the author of Hebrews talking about here, obtained that promise. Remember, at the time of the oath of verse 15, Isaac was already a young man because he already Abraham was already about to offer him. So what is it that the author of Hebrews talking about here when he said he obtained that promise? What is he talking about? He's not talking, obviously, about the birth of Isaac because Isaac, again, at this point was a young kid. But he's probably talking about the fact that when God spared Isaac and gave it back to Abraham, now Abraham received back the very reason of the fulfillment of the promises of God. You guys are with me? So the author of Hebrews actually made a reference to that later on in Hebrews eleven nineteen, when he said this, concluding, that's Abraham, that God was able to raise him up, raise Isaac up, even from the dead, from which he also, Abraham also received Isaac in a figurative sense. He received him back as if he raised him, God raised him up back from the dead and gave it back to him. So when the author of Hebrews said that Abraham obtained the promise, he's probably referring to re receiving Isaac back from the dead. Through that and through him, the promises of God will be fulfilled. Amen? And in verse 15, it says this, And so after he patiently endured, that's the exact same Greek word that the author of Hebrews just used in verse 12, when he told his readers this, he said, don't be sluggish, right? Remember that? But imitate those who throw patience and faith, obtain the promise. The exact same word that he used here in verse 12, patience and faith, is the exact same word that he used in verse 15 to describe how Abraham himself has obtained the promises of God. It was the enduring faith, trusting God, even to the point that he was willing to sacrifice his own son, uh, for the sake of obeying God, that is the level of enduring faith that Abraham exhorted. And that is the level of enduring faith that God is asking you and me to exhibit. Amen? <coughs> so we understand now how God dealt with Abraham because that is a type of how God will deal with you and me. Verse 16. For men indeed, he's emphasizing the point of the oath here, the author of Hebrews. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end to all dispute. The author of Hebrews here telling us this. An oath has two purposes, serves in two ways. Number one, it's a confirmation, and number two, it's an end of all dispute. That's the purpose of an oath. An oath serves as a confirmation, as a guarantee. So even if like somebody in the Old Testament would say, as the Lord live, I will do this and this. Somebody in the Old Testament making an oath. That person is placing the integrity and the very entity of God as a guarantee that his words will come to pass. Amen? And not only that, in the Old Testament, 
If you say, as the Lord live, like you're swearing by God, and then you actually don't fulfill the words that you have just said, in the Old Testament rules, you're considered breaking the commandment. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So when you do not fulfill your oath, you also making yourself a breaker of the law because you have taken the name of the Lord God in vain. So it's a confirmation. That is the mindset of the Old Testament people. When somebody's wearing an oath, this is just an absolute solid guarantee. This definitely will come to pass. But not only that, the oath serves as a second purpose, which is an end to all dispute. That means there is nothing going to ever stop me from fulfilling the very words. No, no contradiction. No matter what, this is going to happen. There is nothing to dispute that fact. You guys are with me? So that is the mindset of the Old Testament people. That's what Abraham was thinking about when God made an oath to him that he, Abraham, will receive the very fulfillment of his promises. Now, the author of Hebrews is telling us this. The way God dealt with Abraham, how God gave Abraham a promise and an oath to confirm that he will do about what he has promised him to do, is the exact same way that God is dealing with you and me. Verse 17 and 18. <coughs> thus God, thus God. So he's building on the, the way God, God dealt with Abraham. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise. Who are these people? The heirs of the promise. You and me, right? The, the, the New Testament church, the readers of the book of Hebrews. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise, the immutability of his counsel which is your salvation and my salvation, he confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to, read, to get hold of the hope that is laid before us. What the author of Hebrews is doing here in verse 17 and 18, he's switching from Abraham and how God gave him both a promise and an oath. And now he's saying the same way God has dealt with Abraham. After he gave him the promise, he swore and gave him an oath. He dealt with you and me in the same way. We are the heirs of the promise. He already has given us a promise of eternal life, right? But God did not just give us a promise. He also gave us an oath so that through the promise of God and the oath of God we should have strong consolation and good hold of the hope that is laid before us. You guys are with me? Let's talk about this. The promises of God that you and I will have eternal life is so abundant. You can find tons of promises in the New Testament. Jesus for example said, my sheep hears my voice and I will give them eternal life. Amen? Here's a promise that you and I have eternal life. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him should not perish but have an everlasting life. Here is a promise. And the promises of God that you and me as born again believers have eternal life is so abundant. The question is, where is the oath? Because the author of Hebrews here is telling us that God confirmed the promise with an oath. If you read throughout the New Testament, there is no oath from God. God never said to you and me, as I live, says the Lord, you have eternal life. We don't see that. So where is that oath that the author of Hebrews is referring to? That oath is actually from the Old Testament, from Psalm 110 verse 4, 
And it's not giving to you, it's giving to Jesus. Here is what it says, Psalm 110 verse 4, The Lord has sworn and shall not relent. You are a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. You guys are with me? That verse, Psalm 110 verse uh, 4, that was quoted in chapter 5 verse 10, in, in, in Hebrews 5 10. He said this, he said, the author of Hebrews in chapter 5 verse 10 and 11, or 11, well, 9 and 10. He said this, that Jesus, um, he, he became appointed by God as our Savior at his salvation, and he has become a high priest forever on the order of Melchizedek. And right after that, he stopped, and he went on his warning, the whole third warning. And now he's going back to his original argument. So all the passage from chapter 5, verse 11, all the way to chapter 6, verse 12, this is kind of like, uh, uh, an afterthought, something that he just inserted in his argument. But right now he's going back to chapter 5, verse, uh, verse 9 and verse 10 and picking up where he left, right? And what he left over there is this, the Father has made an oath to Christ and he said, the Lord has sworn and shall not relent, you are a high priest forever on the order of Melchizedek. You guys are with me? And that is the oath that God has given to Christ that he has appointed him as a high priest forever. And because of that oath, you and me, the heirs of our promise, have both now the promises of God and the oath of God that we have eternal salvation. How does it work? How is that oath beneficial to you and me? Look at verse 17. What does it say? Thus God determining to show to Jesus that he will be a high priest forever, he confirmed it by an oath. Is that what it says? Verse 17. Thus God, determining to show to Jesus, the Son, to show more abundantly to Christ, the Son, that his priestly office will never be removed, he confirmed it by an oath. Does it say that? To the heirs, that's you and me, right? So that oath of Psalm 110 verse 4, the Lord has sworn and shall not relent, you are a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Is that an oath so Jesus can be more secure in his office as our high priest? It's for you and me. You guys are with me? This oath even though it was given to Jesus, yet the purpose of that oath is not so that Jesus would be more secure in his position, but it's rather for you and me to be more secure, knowing that our high priest was not appointed as our Savior only by the word of the promise, but also by an oath from God. You guys are with me? This is key. In the same way God has dealt with Abraham and has confirmed all his promises to Abraham by an oath, God has dealt with the heirs of the promise, you and me, in the same way. In order to show to you and me more abundantly that he will never change his counsel, which is eternal salvation to you and me. He didn't just give us a promise, he also made an oath that our high priest, Jesus, our Savior, is a Pointed to that office to be both our Redeemer, our High Priest, our Savior. Not just by a promise from God, but also by an oath from God. You guys are with me? So that's why it says in verse 17, Thus God determining to show more abundantly, not to Jesus, but to the heirs of the promise, the immutability of his counsel, he confirmed it by oath. That in two immutable things in which it's impossible for God to lie. What are these two immutable things so far? It is uh, the promise of salvation and the oath of salvation. You guys are with me? 
Because God gave us two immutable things by which we can hold, we can really, really trust in him. His promises and his oath. Amen? By these two immutable things, the promise of God and the oath of God, we, and it's impossible for God to lie in either one of them, we should have strong consolation. Amen? This is awesome. So you and me can rest safe and secure in our salvation because God did not just promise us eternal life. God sworn that our Savior will be a high priest forever and his perfect plan of salvation will never be changed in any way or shape or form. And God has sworn and guaranteed that but his very own existence and his very, very own integrity and his very own nature. Amen? That by two things, it's impossible for God to light each one of them. We, the heirs of the promise, should have strong consolation. And then he described us, the heirs of the promise, as this. We who have fled for refuge. And then we wanted to lay hold of the hope that is laid before us. We have fled for refuge. The Greek word that the author of Hebrews is using here is the exact same Greek word that used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, to describe the city of refuge and that God has commanded both Moses and Joshua in Deuteronomy uh, 4 and 19 and in Joshua 20. You guys remember that story or no? We preached about it last last year when we were talking about the shadows of Golgotha and we talked about how Christ is our city of refuge that God in the Old Testament commanded if anybody uh, killed unintentionally they will have six cities spread out throughout the land and if somebody kills unintentionally he can run and be safe in that city from the avenger of the blood and that is the exact same word that the author of Hebrews used here to describe you and me we're the one who have ran and take refuge in Christ from the judgment of God over our sins. Amen? But not only that, we also, we in fleeing to Christ's safety, we are laying hold of the hope that is set before us. The author of Hebrews here telling us that this hope is something objective that is waiting for us. It is not our attitude, it is not our hope or our hopefulness or the way we live our life right now. But the hope that the author of Hebrews is talking about here is something ahead of us. It's something waiting for us that we need to get hold of, that we're striving to get there. Amen? And what is he talking about? He's talking about heaven. He's talking about our eternal salvation when we end up in heaven with Jesus for all eternity. He's saying that very existence with God for all eternity is the hope that is laid before us. We have ran from, our, from the judgment of God over our sins and we have taken hold of Christ to be our refuge so that we can look forward to the hope of eternal life that is God that God has laid in front of us. Amen? And then verse 19 and 20, the author of Hebrews goes on to describe that hope. How does that hope look like? And it says this, this hope that one day we'll have an eternal life and be with Jesus is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. Amen? It is an anchor. Never in the New Testament we see that um, analogy that anything is an anchor. That's the only mention of it in the whole New Testament. The hope that we have eternal life. To know surely and securely that you have eternal life is an anchor of the soul. Amen? That means if persecution comes, if things doesn't go well your way, you always can be rested, secure, and safe, and steadfast that you know that one day you will be in heaven with Christ no matter what 
comes your way. Amen? And then it says that this hope is not just an anchor. It's both secure and steadfast. These two words almost um, similar to each other. Very identical. The point here is to emphasize that our eternity, our eternal life is as secure as the anchor hold the ship from any wind or from any waves that comes its way. The ship is secure because of the anchor. You guys are with me? And this is a far much, let's put this in the bigger context. Remember what he was saying in verse 4 and 6 about those who were once enlightened and have abandoned Christ and, you know, they now crucify for themselves the Son of God again and make a public spectacle of them. He said it's impossible for these people to be renewed back to the faith and to repentance, right? Contrast that. With the picture of those who are truly saved by the Spirit of God, who are truly born again, who don't have to wonder about their eternal salvation, because the hope and the knowledge that they have eternal life is an anchor of the soul, both secure and steadfast. You guys are with me? That again goes to show us that there seems to be two groups of people, in a way, that the author of Hebrews is talking about. Those who are going to... After knowing Christ, they will result in apostasy and they were never saved in the first place in a way. And those who, after knowing Christ, because of persecution, they're still going to stick with him and show that kind of enduring faith. And these are the people they can rest secure that their eternal life will never wave or change by persecution or by anything that comes their way. Amen. And then it says this, and this hope is like an anchor of the soul which enters the presence behind the veil. The author of Hebrews here is talking about the, the tabernacle of the Old Testament. Remember, we talked about this many times, where you have the outer court, that's like the yard, and then you have the holy place, and then you have the veil, and then you have the holy of holies. And the holy of holies way inside in the tabernacle, that's where the Ark of the Covenant is, that's where the presence, that presence of God is. You guys are with me? And the author of Hebrews is saying this. Just like people in the Old Testament who could not see behind the veil, so is our hope that we have eternal life. It's anchored in the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. It's anchored in heaven and in who God is. It has nothing to do with your life situation. It has nothing to do with you being persecuted. It has nothing to do with anything you do or say. If you have committed your life to Christ, you should know that your security and your eternal life is as secure as God is. Because the anchor is not on the outside. It is inside, in the presence, behind the veil. You guys are with me? So our eternal life is not dependent on you and me. It's dependent on the integrity of who God is and the perfection of his promise and the oath that he had made to the, to the heirs of the promise. Amen? That helps you and me to rest really happy. There is nothing you can do in a way to mess up your salvation because the Holy Spirit in you will prevent you from living the life of sin. And because of that, you can rest secure that your eternal life doesn't depend on you. It depends on what Jesus has done on the cross. Amen? That is the guarantee for your eternal life and my eternal life. And then he says here, the veil, behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Amen? Look at this. Where the forerunners has entered, what does it say after that? For us. For us. You guys are with me? 
If you remember in the Old Testament, the high priest will go into behind that veil into the Holy of Holies once a year, right? First time, he goes twice. That one day, he goes twice. The first time, to, to atone for his own sins. And the second time, to atone for the people's sin. So every single time the high priest will go into the Holy of Holies, he's going in as a representative of the people. You guys are with me? He's going behind the veil for the people. And in that sense, the author of Hebrews is saying here, Jesus also have entered into the very Holy of Holies, entered into heaven itself for us. Just like the high priest in the Old Testament will take blood and go into the Holy of Holies to atone for the sins of the people, Jesus also take his own blood and enter into the Holy of Holies one time to atone for our sins. He was our representative when he atoned for our sins. Just like the Old Testament high priest. Amen? Amen. But unlike the Old Testament high priest, Jesus entered into the Holy of Holies as our Forerunner. You guys are with me? Every single high priest in the Old Testament, by the mere fact that he goes behind the veil as a representative, by default, that excludes everybody else from going behind the veil. You guys are with me? As a matter of fact, it's strictly prohibited in the Old Testament that anyone will ever consider going into the Holy of Holies, except the high priest one day a year, he entered twice. And that's it. Amen? So the Old Testament high priest has always been a representative enter into the Holy of Holies for that people. And even though entered as, Jesus entered as our representative, he also entered as our forerunner. Unlike the Old Testament high priest, none of them could enter as forerunners. Amen? What does the forerunner mean? He's the beginning. He's the, the first one who does it. But that means that he opened the door for all of us to enter into the Holy of Holies eventually. Amen? When Jesus entered into the Holy of Holies, to the very presence of God, he didn't enter just as our representative, but he entered so he can open the door for all of us, so we all can eventually enter into the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God, which is our eternal life. You guys are with me? That's powerful. Amen? That's awesome. Jesus did not just enter as our representative. He also entered as our forerunner. He opened the door for you and me to enter into heaven once and for all. Amen? Once and for all. He did it once and he opened the door once and for all. Not like the Old Testament. Amen. It's a very tough passage, but I hope you understand it because this is essential to our understanding of how Jesus is our high priest and through whom we have eternal salvation. Amen? Amen. Let's close our eyes and pray.